glory, the assurance of glory. And we might expect Paul to now develop these truths into some practical exhortations for us to follow, like he does in some of his other letters, like some other books in the New Testament do, like Ephesians or Colossians. And Paul will do this in Romans. He does it in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, in view of these mercies, the mercies of God. And then he'll launch into some exhortations for us as God's people. But in chapters 9 through 11, Paul first works through the dilemma of Israel's unbelief, their rejection of Christ. And he's talked quite a bit about the Jewish faith, the the Jews and the law, their relationship with God, the call of the gospel to both Jew and Gentile alike. But there is a dilemma, there's a question that's left that he now needs to resolve. And it might seem like a detour, but it's actually a necessary part of his exposition of the gospel. Because if God chose Israel and made promises to Israel through his covenants with them, but Israel is not saved, then how can we be assured that the gospel will work? That all of these great promises, especially in chapters 5 through 8, how do we know that they will come true? Does the gospel have integrity? So in Romans 9 through 11, we find a vindication of the gospel. Paul is defending the legitimacy of the gospel in light of Israel's lostness and failure to obtain salvation as a nation. So this section then opens with Paul's anguish over Israel's condition in verses 1 through 5. And then it closes with a doxology at the end of chapter 11 that extols God's unsearchable wisdom. Which is the ultimate solution to the problem. In between, Paul vindicates the gospel by affirming God's word and God's justice by exposing Israel's failures and by revealing Israel's hope for the future. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. 
But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Father, open our hearts now, humble us to receive your word. Lord, give us wisdom to understand its depths. And Lord, we are grateful for your grace where we fail to grasp its depths. In your name we ask these things, amen. Paul introduces the dilemma over Israel's unbelief with his own deep anguish for them. And we, we really get a sense of Paul's compassion here, don't we? Paul has a compassion for people who don't know Christ. Paul has anguish for those who reject Christ, don't know him, who don't experience forgiveness, who don't experience grace, especially for his own people who don't know Christ. Now, Paul is not, I don't think, here trying to model or to say to us, this is how you ought to approach those who don't know Christ, but I can't help I can't get away from the question, do we really care about unbelievers in this way? Do we really see our neighbors, our own fellow citizens, the way that Paul sees his own people? And I'm not saying even that I think that all of us are going to to rise to Paul's level of compassion for entire people groups. But we do some people groups at times, don't we? And we do some individuals. What unbeliever or unbelievers, whether that's a particular person or whether that's a race of people, a nation, does your heart break for? Can you say with Paul, you feel anguish and sorrow. His compassion is so intense that he says, if it were possible... He would be accursed, that's a word for damnation, that he would be accursed and cut off from Christ instead of them. And when he says, for the sake of my brothers, he means facing damnation in their place, that he would take their place, that he would substitute himself for them if he could, that he feels that intense. This may be hyperbole, to some degree, but it captures the intensity of his sorrow, his anguish for the people of Israel. But there's also more going on here than his compassion for fellow Israelites. There is a zeal 
for God's program. There's a zeal for the purposes of God that God is working out in the world. Paul anguishes over what seems to be a disruption of God's saving plans, his purposes. Israel's unbelief seems to call into question the integrity of God's promises because they are Israelites, God's chosen nation. They have received all of these blessings, the adoption, that is God making them his own, calling them out from other, every other people group. Theirs is the glory. God's presence actually dwelt among the nation of Israel. Theirs is the covenants, a means of knowing God, a means of relating to God. Theirs is the giving of the law. The law was revealed to them how to please God. It set them apart from all of the other nations. Theirs is the worship. This is talking about the temple and the sacrifices. All of these things point to their ability, God-given ability, to come to his presence, what they needed to do to have access to God. Theirs are the promises, their blessed future, including and especially a savior. On top of that, they have the ancestry. They have the right lineage. They have the patriarchs. And the claim of the Christ from their race, of all of the races in the world, from their race comes an eternal Savior King who is God over all, blessed forever. And Paul just can't hold back his praise. Amen. Well, what happened? How did the blessed, privileged, chosen people of God come to be in a state of accursed and cut off from Christ, the very Savior King that was promised to them? Did God's purposes fail? Did the Israelites' stubbornness, did their weaknesses exceed God's expectations? Did they get the better of God? What does this mean for them? Are they cast out? Done? Rejected utterly? And what does it mean for the gospel and those who put their trust in it? Now, Paul is going to take chapters 9 through 11 to answer these questions, but he starts with a single statement in verse 6 that stands as the foundation of everything else he's going to say till the end of chapter 11. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. God's word has not failed. It has not failed. The word of God here is a way of highlighting God's program or his plan because God's word is the means by which he accomplishes his will and purposes in the world, in history. By his word, he creates. We know this from Genesis chapters 1 and 2, 
and Hebrews chapter 11. It is by his word that he spoke all things into existence. And it is by his word that he rules his creation. And it's by his word that he redeems and saves. The Lord himself explains this in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So it is God's word that he sends forth to accomplish his will and his purposes in history and the world. This is why the gospel, it is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. That the gospel Paul preaches is the means by which God's word saves his people. In Romans chapter 9, the thing God's word was sent to accomplish is salvation, the saving of his people Israel. That's what Paul's talking about. And Paul says, as Isaiah 55 declares, that God's sovereign saving word has not failed. It has not failed. Even though Israel's condition that Paul mourns over here in Romans chapter 9 remains even to our own day, some 2,000 years plus later. Whether you think of Jewish, the Jewish race or the Jewish people ethnically, whether you think of Judaism, Jewish religion, or whether you think of Israel as a nation state, what Paul mourns over here is still true. How is it possible then, given Israel's state of unbelief, that God's sovereign saving word has not failed? Well, Paul begins his vindication of the gospel then by revealing that behind this apparent failure of God's purposes for Israel, God is actually accomplishing what he intended to do all along and precisely in the way that he intended to accomplish it. Israel's unbelief is consistent with how God has worked from the very beginning. And Paul presents then two examples from the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis, that demonstrate the belonging to God's people has always depended on God's promise and God's election. God's promise and God's election. It has never depended on physical descent, ethnicity, nor has it ever depended on achievement. Always on God's promise and always on God's election. Each example, and you'll see this here, each example contrasts two brothers. Each example records the reversal of human expectations. Humanity's criteria and each example is supported by two quotes or citations from Scripture. So the first, then, 
The first proof that God's word has not failed is because of God's promise. God's word has not failed because of God's promise. Look again at verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are offspring. Now Paul is going to use the words Israel and the words offspring with kind of a dual meaning. He reveals that there are really two Israels. One is an ethnic Israel that biologically descends from Abraham. The other is what we might call a true Israel or a spiritual Israel, maybe better, a chosen Israel. Now this other Israel is not the church. Romans 9 verses 1 through 5 and now following is very clear that Paul is talking about a subgroup of national ethnic Israel that he considers the true Israel. Not the replacement of Israel with a different people group. And what he says through chapters 9, 10, and 11 will show that to be very clear. But there is a true Israel within the ethnic nation of Israel. Now, the first quote here is from Genesis chapter 21, verse 12. But to understand Genesis 21, you have to understand the events of Genesis chapters 15 and 16. So without turning there and actually reading the whole account, let me summarize it. In Genesis chapter 15, God promises Abraham a son of his own. Abraham suggests that he is going to name an heir. Someone, he doesn't have any children. He doesn't have any sons. He's going to name an heir, someone else from his greater household. And God says, nope, I'm going to give you your own son. Sarah will have a son. But in chapter 16, Sarah becomes impatient, and she doubts the promise, and she comes up with kind of her own scheme to make sure the promise comes true to fulfill it. And she convinces Abraham, her husband, to have an heir through her servant, Hagar. And it works. Hagar bears a son whose name is Ishmael. Fourteen years later, in Genesis chapter 21, Sarah herself gives birth to Isaac. And thus, God fulfills his promise to give Abraham and Sarah, even in their old age, and Genesis chapter 21 says that Abraham was 100 years old. He gives Abraham and Sarah their very own son. Now that Isaac is born, Sarah wants Ishmael out of the picture. She wants and requests Abraham to cast Hagar and Ishmael out, which leads to the Lord providing for Hagar and Ishmael. And it leads to the Lord's confirmation to Abraham, verse 12 here of chapter 21, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Through Isaac, the promise is going to be fulfilled. So we have two sons of Abraham, 
we have two heirs. Ishmael is the oldest, which according to social conventions and cultural expectations means that he will receive the preeminence, he will receive the inheritance. The fact that Hagar was a slave, the fact that Sarah was the one that Abraham loved, regardless of any of that, the social conventions would have been the oldest son. God overturns this norm because he had promised Isaac. Isaac is the child of promise. Paul explains the point he wants to make here in verses 8 and 9 then. Look back at Romans 9. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. That's Genesis 18 verses 10 and 14 that Paul has kind of put together. Ishmael was as much a child of Abraham's flesh as Isaac was. And in fact, Ishmael experienced great blessing. God promised to bless Ishmael. He also talked about some conflict. His brother's hands would always be against him in these things. But Ishmael survived. Ishmael flourished. He too was a son of Abraham. But he was not the son of promise. Isaac was the son of promise, and so Isaac's descendants would be the children of promise. Now, Paul is establishing a pattern on this truth. Even though the fleshly requirements were met by both sons, not all of Abraham's offspring truly qualified as Abraham's offspring. You can see how he makes the play on the word. They both are physical offspring, but only one is the offspring of promise because the promise followed only Isaac. Now, what's Paul saying? He's saying that there was a distinction already made. In the same way, not all of those who are Isaac's offspring, his descendants, qualify as children of promise. National Israel's rejection of Christ doesn't jeopardize God's promise because they don't belong to him by birth as children of the flesh. And Isaac's immediate offspring also demonstrate this and show that God's promise doesn't rest on our achievements or works. So Paul is actually building here. This isn't just a parallel thought. He's actually building on the truth that comes out of this distinction between Isaac and Ishmael. So Paul is saying, look, from the very beginning, God promises something. It's about promise. It isn't about lineage, ultimately. And so now he builds on it by going to the next story in the book of Genesis, which shows us that God's word has not failed because of God's election. So God's word has not failed because of God's promise, and God's word has not failed because of God's election. Now, I know that the doctrine of election is, for some of you, a difficult teaching to 
reconcile and accept. Okay? And this is true for everybody at some point. In fact, as I've gotten older through the years, and I, over and over again I watch men come out of seminary or Bible college, and they, they're going into ministry, they're in training, inevitably this discussion comes up. How many nights have I stayed up till 2 or 3 in the morning discussing the sovereignty of God and the will of people? Because eventually, everybody breaks over this. Everybody has to come to grips with this. And it's worth talking about. Okay, Don't hear me begrudging those conversations. And I'll be happy to have those with you all also. Okay, Which I'm sure some of you will take me up on that. I don't begrudge those conversations. They're worth having. The truth is deep enough to dive into over and over and over again. And wrestle with. It's a teaching that is hard to reconcile and accept because there are many other scriptures that talk about our decisions, our choices, our willingness to reject or receive the gospel. Now remember, I will come back to this over and over again. The street level perspective, right? Versus the the behind-the-curtain perspective. At the street-level experience, we are called upon to believe. We are called upon to choose. That's how we experience it. I think that's why most of us as Christians eventually have to wrestle through this. Because when we're not Christians and we hear the gospel preached and we respond to it, we, that's how we think of it. That's our level of thinking. I responded. I heard. I chose to believe in Christ. Behind the curtain, of course, and we've already seen this earlier in Romans chapter 8, God was calling. God was working. God had given your heart new life and enabled you to hear and understand the gospel and to believe. But it's hard to reconcile with all of these other scriptures that talk about our choosing, our will. It's also hard to reconcile because we know on the one hand, God loves everybody. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right? God loves the human race. But God doesn't save everybody. How do we reconcile that? How can we say that God is loving and yet God, if it depends on God's election, God's sovereign choosing, then does that jeopardize his love or his justice? We'll talk more about that next week. But those are reasons it's hard to reconcile. It's also hard to accept because in our pride, preserving our freedom to choose becomes a priority in our thinking. It becomes the priority for how we see truth and read Scripture. And so we begin to redefine words, and we begin to to have caveats for certain passages of Scripture because our grid is suddenly coming through. My highest priority is to make sure that my freedom to choose God is preserved and not jeopardized. And so that's how we begin to read and understand the Bible. Well, while I understand the difficulty, 
and I believe that these difficulties can be worked through, the Bible is unmistakably clear. It's unmistakably clear about God's sovereignty and election that he chooses, that he elects, that you and I, in our sin, in our lostness, do not have the capacity to love God, to repent from sin. He must initiate. He must do the work. And that God is zealous for his own glory in doing so. Now, I could offer many scripture references, but I'm not going to do that today. Okay, And we actually, we saw a few weeks ago, even in Romans chapter 8, those God foreknew, right? He predestined, those he predestined, he called, called, justified, glorified. So we see this unbreakable chain. There are many others in the New Testament. As I mentioned, we'll talk more about that next time because Paul is going to build on this doctrine of election in Romans chapter 9, past verse 13. But let's start with the perspective that Paul isn't trying to prove the doctrine of election. He is simply relying on its reality, on that truth, to show how God's word hasn't failed. That it hasn't failed. And not only so, verse 10, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. In other words, let's pause right here. In other words, both of her sons came from the same husband, the same man, the same Isaac, the promised one. Both qualify as children of promise, don't they? Not only do they have the same father, like Ishmael and Isaac, they are twins. They are in the same womb at the same time, conceived at the same moment. And yet, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Again, let's pause. Both sons qualify by flesh and blood standards. Also, neither has superior, superior moral status over the other. They're not even born yet. And note that God doesn't look down the tunnel of time here and award moral status based on the good or the bad that these two brothers will do. And if you read the Genesis accounts, they're both bad. Neither of them are good. Esau is arrogant and brash, and Jacob is arrogant and deceitful. A schemer. Not only are they not born yet, they're both going to be bad. So, instead, God elects. He chooses one of Isaac's sons through whom he will fulfill his promises. And God's goal, according to what Paul says here, is that he preserves his purposes 
of election, that they might continue. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he means this, that God has already elected Abraham. Abraham did not know God. Abraham, in worshiping all of his false gods and all of the false gods of his families and clans didn't suddenly wake up one day you know and say you know I think there's a real God and I need to seek him and God then responded and said hey there's one guy over here in the Ur of the Chaldees he's looking for me he's seeking me his name's Abram I think I'll choose him no nothing God chose Abraham he elected him He also elected Isaac. He promised Isaac, and his election actually gave a promise that he would fulfill by bringing Isaac, and no competitor was able to disrupt it, Ishmael. And Paul is saying that God's elective purposes now continue. They continue. God chooses one of Isaac's sons through whom he will fulfill his promises. And, watch this, as both qualify by physical birth, by lineage, and as both have equal moral status, there is only one criterion left, and that's birth order. The oldest by every, here we go again, right? It's a repeated theme. It's a repeated action of God's. Again, social conventions, humanity's expectations of the culture at the time. The oldest son would receive the preeminence. The oldest should receive the promise. But what does God do? He reverses it. He reverses it. Verses 12 and 13 she was told, this is Rebecca. Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, Rebecca was told before they are even born what God was going to do. God was going to choose to elect the younger brother. The younger brother. Now you'd think with all of that clarity, that declaration, that when Esau popped out first and Jacob came out clutching his heel, that Isaac and Rebekah would have said, oh, see the second one clutching his heel? Jacob, he's going to end up getting it all. But they don't. They don't. Isaac continues down through the years to look at Esau, admire Esau, give Esau, seek to give Esau the birthright and the blessing. And Rebekah does not say, you know what, I don't need to mess with this. I'm just going to trust the Lord. He has said the, the, younger, the older is going to serve the younger. He told me that while they were still in my womb. I'm just going to let God do what he needs to do. And how. No, she schemes and plots, and Jacob gets in on it with her and then steals the birthright and all of these things, right? What's the purpose of all of that? What is the purpose of Genesis telling us all of that? Are we supposed to walk away and say, boy, Jacob, it's a good thing he was the chosen one, he was the elected one. 
because he really showed some moral fortitude and character. No, you're supposed to walk away and go, God is God, period. God elects, God works. And my expectations and my conventions and all of my logic don't have anything to do or any effect on what God is doing, what his purposes and plans are. The meaning of Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, which is what Paul quotes in verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, is not love and hate like the emotion, as though there was something about Jacob that God loved. I just, I love this guy. In the womb, he's such a cute little fetus in the womb. I just, I love this guy. I hate Esau. Boy, he just rubs me the wrong way. That's not what he means by love and hate it. It doesn't mean that God said, I am going to, I'm just going to arbitrarily choose this kid, this baby, the younger, and I'm going to treat the older one then with disdain. I'm going to bless this one and I'm going to hate this one and, and make his life miserable. If you read Genesis, just like Ishmael receives these just blessings that just kind of fall off Abraham's table, Esau experiences the same thing. Even though Esau is portrayed as a, a guy who lives by his gut, doesn't value the things that the Lord has given him, doesn't care about them, he still experiences great blessing, great wealth, great prominence. But it is not through Esau that the promise is going to be kept. That's what this verse means by hate. Esau is not chosen. In that sense, Esau is rejected by the nature of the fact that Jacob is chosen. By choosing Jacob, he rejects Esau. And again, it's not because Jacob was any better. Now, if you're like me, at this point in the story, and even at this point in what Paul is saying, you have to ask the question, why doesn't God begin the tribes of Israel with Esau and Jacob? I mean, that's what he's going to do with Jacob's sons, isn't it? Jacob has 12 sons, and God doesn't come to Jacob's sons and reject 11 of them and choose one of them to receive the promises, does he? No, they become the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's like, well, why not just start with the two tribes that then each have six? You still get your number, 12. And now we've got the 12 tribes. Why choose Jacob and reject Esau? You know what the answer is? I hope so, because I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know. And you know what? I don't need to know. I don't need to know. You don't either. And that's really where this is going. The key to understanding God's sovereignty and his purposes in salvation is to know when to say, I don't know and I don't need to know. And if it were explained to me, I probably couldn't get it. It would probably fry my CPU, right? It would burn all the circuitry. 
I don't have the capacity to understand all of God's rule and purposes in the world. I don't even have the capacity to understand what he has revealed. Not entirely, anyway. Even though he makes it clear. So how could I understand and and think that I can sit in judgment on whether or not God should have just started the tribes of Israel with Esau and Jacob instead of the 12 sons of Jacob? I I don't get to do that. But you see, Paul is pointing to a pattern that God exalts himself in his sovereignty. And you know why? Because it is the right thing for God to do. For God to do anything less would be to violate himself. It is the rightest thing in the world for God to make himself the center of all things. In fact, it's the reason that it makes it wrong for you to do so or for me to do so. You see, we look and we go, it's really selfish of God to put himself at the center because we know by our own conscience and by Scripture that it's wrong for you or me to put ourselves at the center, to worship ourselves, to make those demands on other people, to look to our own interests our own ambitions. And so then we take the moral high ground and we try to put that on God and say, well, if God really loved, if God was really righteous, he wouldn't put himself at the center. He'd make me the center. But do you see? That's an impossibility. The very reason you can't be the center of the universe, even your own small little universe, or me the center of mine, is that God is the center. And for God to be consistent, he must make himself the center. He must exalt himself. And so God comes down through history, and he just reverses everything. No, not Ishmael, even though these are the oldest born. I promised Isaac. Isaac gets the promise. Isaac has twin sons. Again, the only criterion that could determine, uh, distinguish between the two is the birth order, who comes out first. I'm going to turn that over also. I choose Jacob. And through Jacob and his 12 sons comes the nation that I promised Abraham. And through them comes the promises and the Christ So this is a pattern. So what Paul's point then is that Israel's unbelief is no threat to the integrity and the trustworthiness of God's word. It's no threat to the gospel. And that you and I are to find our confidence and our rest in this truth. That when we look back at all the promises of the gospel and even... The purpose of writing this letter to the Romans, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That nothing disrupts, nothing thwarts that purpose. That the gospel cannot fail in saving. Well, we've got more to study on this, don't we? We have to dig in further, and Paul's going to even take some of our our uh, reactions to task as we continue. But let's, let's pray and thank the Lord for these truths.
And Lord, we do come before your truth. And I know that there, there are many who will wrestle with this, um, that their feathers will be ruffled. And Lord, I trust you that you, will, you work in the hearts of your people. You open up understanding that even one simple sermon is not sufficient to do that apart from the work of your spirit to grant uh, understanding. But Holy Spirit, we trust, we know that you are at work in transforming our lives, changing our thinking, deepening us, our understanding of truth, that you are rooting us into Christ, that we are being built up in him because we belong to you by no achievements of our own, by no status we can claim, but Lord, only by your sovereign grace, only that you have worked in our lives. And we are left to rejoice then, to joyfully come before you with empty hands, with hearts that are full, though, full of praise and full of thanksgiving because of your greatness, even a greatness at times that we can't reconcile with our own sense of fairness or justice or any of those things. Lord, your word has not failed, and it will not fail in the purposes you have for your people here at Crossway. In your name we proclaim these things and ask them, amen.